Today, we're continuing in our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. And last week was our introduction, and we focused on just the first verse of the book. Why was that again? Context, because context matters. Context matters. And one of the main things we saw is just how much context matters, right? So we say Philippians is the letter of joy, and that can mean one thing until you understand the context, and then it means something different, right? We talk about the letter of joy, and that feels almost, or can feel almost trivial. And then we start to talk about the suffering of the Apostle Paul who wrote this book, and of the church at Philippi, and everything they've been through, and it changes things completely. We're talking about real joy that goes deep down, that transcends the circumstances of our lives, right? So, Let's reread the first couple of verses, remind ourselves of that as we get into today's passage. We'll just start with verse one again. And I never told Seth that I was going to do this, so it's not ready. So it's me, not him. Um, Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. Who's Paul? He is an apostle. He's an apostle, which just means what? He's a special messenger from God and uniquely equipped to deliver the gospel to people who have never heard it before. And specifically to people who are Gentiles, who have no context for anything in Scripture, just straight-up pagans. All right? What do we know about his history? He suffered a whole lot, didn't he? He started out, did he start out as a great dude? He didn't. He started out as a Christian killer, right? A persecutor of the church. Jesus came to him, transformed his life. Then he suffered a whole lot for the sake of the gospel. Was beaten within an inch of his life multiple times. All right, Paul. Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers or bishops and deacons. Okay, That's the church at Philippi. And we talked a bit about Philippi itself last week and how the church was founded. Who was there at the beginning? Who was there? Help me. A widow named Lydia, a likely widow. We don't really know that she's a widow, but she's probably a widow. She's in charge of a whole household and she's there by herself. So Lydia, the Philippian jailer, who is this dude who is about ready to kill himself in his household, and then probably one other person, which was this formerly demonic slave girl, right? And Paul was there for just a couple of days. That's it. And then he was taken out. And so that is the kind of people that you grab when you're starting a church, right? When you're going to split a church and start a new one, those are the cornerstone families that you pick, right? That's who God chooses because God's pleased to use the humble, the shame, the wise, and the proud. Okay, we also talked about the context for the letter, um, which was Paul in jail, and they sent somebody to him. But I want to talk about, um, just very quickly before we get into the meat of today's passage, um, just a couple more things. What does he call the church at Philippi? He doesn't call them the church. What does he say to them? What does he call them? Saints. Saints. What does saint mean? It means holy one. Y'all feel holy this morning? 
Y'all feel like saints? Y'all feel like holy ones? No, you don't, right? You don't. I don't. But that's why he doesn't stop at saint, right? Saints in Christ Jesus. That's why those words in Christ Jesus are there. Because you're not holy in and of yourself. I'm not holy in and of myself. We were all born in sin. We were born in the sins of our first father, Adam. And Jesus came to change that. So that we could be called saints. He came, he lived a perfect life, he suffered, he died, he took on the sins of the world so that the sons of Adam might be called the sons of God. So that those born in Adam's sin might be able to be in Christ and in his righteousness. His blood atones for our sins. His perfect obedience is our righteousness before God. And in him, our Father in heaven is perfectly pleased with each one of us. Loves us. We are his saints and his holy ones. And we need to be reminded of that all the time, right? Paul reminds us the churches of this all the time. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Who are we? We are saints, holy ones in Christ Jesus. It's easy to lose that plot. But we are holy ones, precious in the sight of our Father in heaven. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So before we even get started, you come here this morning, you don't feel holy. That's okay. That's kind of the point. Just reminds us that our sins and failures aren't big enough to mess it up if we are in Christ Jesus because we're holy in him. And God's blessing and love and favor is ours even as we come to his word this morning. That's all the promise we need to know that he stands ready to forgive us and give us good things. And we're coming to his word this morning for good things. So grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's keep reading, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging that we are not holy, but that your son is, and that we are, in fact, holy in him. And so we trust you and we trust your goodness to us this morning because of what he's done on our behalf. Pray that you would cleanse our hearts and that you would humble us before you so that we will hear your word and repent of the things we need to repent of and grow in the ways that we need to grow as individuals and as a church. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for the sake of your name. We pray that you would fill them with joy in you this morning in the midst of their suffering. We thank you for the churches and our presbytery, our fellowship. Pray that you would 
be near to each one of them this morning that your word would be faithfully proclaimed and that the fellowship would be sweet. And we pray for the churches in this community that your word would be proclaimed faithfully and that souls would be saved and that this city would be transformed. We pray that you would be with all the families in our church that aren't here this morning who are out of town, the Bruntons and the Conrads and John, that you'd be with them as they travel and that you would minister to their hearts this morning. Pray for the Abrams family as they deal with COVID, that you would heal them quickly and um, protect Ashley and the baby. Pray that you would help us this morning grow in our love for one another as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first question this morning. Who in the world talks this way? Who talks the way that the Apostle Paul talks? Y'all ever heard somebody talk like that before? Nobody talks like that, right? Who talks like that? All this stuff about, I thank God in all my remembrance, always every prayer, making my prayer with joy because if you're, I'm sure of this. It's right for, I have you in my heart. You're all partakers of grace. God's my witness how I yearn for you with all with the affection of Christ. Who talks like that? Nobody talks like that. Why is that? The only people I've heard that talk like that are who? Kind of like super spiritual posers who like make your skin crawl, right? It's like some kind of like weird poser thing that people do. Like, I will talk like the Apostle Paul. And then it's like completely inauthentic and weird, right? Y'all know people like that? People don't talk like this. You don't trust them if they try to. But this isn't that. We already have more context here, right? Something different is going on with this church. Remember all the suffering that's passed. Remember all the suffering of the Apostle Paul. Remember all the suffering of this church. He's all alone, abandoned, in prison, near the end of his life in ministry. People have left him and betrayed him, his whole ministry. And here's Epaphroditus, this messenger from the church at Philippi. And they've come to identify with him and to love him and care for him. It's a very tender letter. It's a letter between a shepherd and a sheep. Remember what we said, we're reading other people's mail, and this is personal stuff personal stuff because the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep is a personal one and ought to be a personal one. Is that the expectation that we have for what our churches should be like, for what this church should be? Flip over to chapter four, verse two, if you have your Bible, you don't have to, but if you just turn the page and look at verse four, chapter, or chapter four, verse two, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He knows their names and he knows what they struggle with. This is intimate. This is personal. This is real. This is not some super dude out there, celebrity dude who doesn't know the people. He was only at Philippi. We only know of him being there for a couple of days. How does he know all these people's names? Well, he either remembered them and actually prays for them, or he sent people to check in and he's heard and he's learned about this stuff because he cares that much. 
Maybe he's made another trip in there that we don't know about. But in any case, he knows them by name. He speaks to them in front of the whole congregation through a letter by name and tells them, agree in the Lord. Stop fighting. Is that the expectation that we have? Is it your expectation? Do you expect that kind of sweetness and intimacy in a church where this kind of language can come to feel natural and not contrived? Every aspect of what we see in Scripture is informative, not just the content, not just the content. That's why we spent so much last time, or, uh, time last week on the context. We're not just learning from the words, the content. That matters. So does everything else that's going on. The tone, the tenor, the relationship that we see here. A lot of churches want to draw out helpful content, but they don't want to model themselves on what they actually see in Scripture. Or don't even know to think about it. On the relationships, on the patterns of life and speech that we see. So do you think this way? Do you feel this way about anyone? Does anyone feel this way about you? About us? We're a young church. It's going to take work and time. This is 10 years in the making, okay? Let's not forget that context either. This is 10 years in the making. But still, that's why I said last week, I want us to aim for this church. To set the bullseye here at Philippi. For our expectations, for our love, our faithfulness, our commitment to God and to one another. Intimacy and love between pastors, elders, and congregation. I want it to, in time, be natural to think and feel and speak this way about each other. I want us to have what they had. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. God is my witness. He makes an oath in the name of God. God is my witness. How I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Where does that come from? Or about th- how about this? Where does this come from? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a big thing to say, right? That's a big thing to say. There's a whole lot of big doctrinal stuff bound up in that one statement. It's a sermon of its own, maybe three. But it's simple enough. God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts. He has started something in you, and so he's going to finish it. You're a saint in Christ Jesus. But think of the confidence that he has in them. He's saying this to a church. Many of the churches that he writes to, he's concerned that they've abandoned the faith altogether. He tells the Corinthian church, I'm afraid that I've preached the gospel to you in vain. He spent a year and a half in Corinth before he left. He spent a year and a half there. He was in Philippi for days. A year and a half working and laboring and discipling the church at Corinth, and he's gone, and they're ready to abandon him for other people. This is just like what his life is. And he has the confidence to say to this church, I know what God has done in you, and he will complete it. That's a big deal. Church at Corinth was instantly filled with sexual immorality, with fights, with drunkenness, with super spiritual pride. 
And the same thing's true of the Galatian church. They abandon the gospel. They forsake the teaching of the apostle Paul. They bought into lies of false apostles. Paul's writing them to win them back. He's not writing the Philippian church to win them back. He's just writing to encourage them. He's not talking about his confidence and his own assurance that God has done a work in himself. He's looking at other people and saying, I've seen God's work in you. And I'm confident that he will bring it to completion because what God starts, God finishes. That's a big deal. Where does that confidence come from? The thankfulness at the beginning, I thank my God in all all my remembrance of you. The thankfulness, the confidence, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The intimacy and sweetness and affection, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Where do those things come from? It's here in the passage. It's in phrases like this, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They have 10 years of humbly partnering with the Apostle Paul in the work of the gospel. From the first day he showed up at Philippi and found his way down to the river where Lydia had gathered with some other God-fearing women to pray. From the moment the earthquake opened up the jail and he said, stop, don't kill yourself to the jailer. And the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? 10 years of suffering and persecution and identification with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with Jesus himself, and with Jesus's faithful ministers. 10 years, the apostle Paul being abandoned by faithless churches and false friends. 10 years of being chased out of cities, being pursued city to city by slanderers. 10 years of having people come behind him and try to tear down the work that God has done through him. And this church was there through it all, supporting him financially, praying for him, suffering with him, identifying with him. They have been, he says later, partakers with him of grace, both in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now think what that means. Paul was imprisoned for his teaching in his preaching, right? He was imprisoned because of what he said and thought and believed and the upheaval that came in the context of that. In some sense, he was a political or ideological prisoner, right? If I get thrown in jail because I'm preaching God's word and you show up to the jail, what happens? What happens? You get persecuted too. You get identified with me and what I've taught. People aren't dumb. They're paying attention. If they're ready to persecute somebody and throw them in jail for preaching, the people who are closest and are willing to show up and help that guy are next in line. That's why all these churches abandoned him. It was hard. We shouldn't look down on them. We should strive to not be like them, but we should have the humility to recognize that would have been really hard, actually. That would have been really hard to do. To face that, they were weak. <laughs> How much different would we be really, actually? They had the power to just have them put to death. But the church at Philippi was different. They were unashamed. In his imprisonment, they didn't shrink back. They identified with him. And it was personal for them too. Remember the context again. These guys were, were, uh, were decommissioned Roman soldiers for the most part. That's who principally occupied Philippi, where all these decommissioned Roman soldiers who had fought in the Roman Civil War. 
All their friends and family are Rome. They're the people in charge. They're the people doing the persecuting, or at least executing the orders. They didn't shrink back. They were unashamed. They were good soldiers. They were citizens of another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. They didn't need to identify with Rome and seek Rome's approval anymore. Their father was God. Their Lord and King is Jesus. Their shepherd is Paul. The lines are clear. That's the way we fall. And what's more, he says, not just in his imprisonment, but in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In other words, when Paul went to prison for what he preached, they defended God in God's word. They defended the gospel. They didn't stand by and let God's word be slandered. They didn't let the message of salvation be slandered by wicked men. They were lying about the Apostle Paul and they were lying about the message. They were lying about what God's word said. They weren't going to stand for that either. They go out there and defend the faith. That is how the first Christians conquered the ancient world. They did it by being Christians who loved each other and defended the faith. By being Christians, not politicians, not soldiers, not savvy businessmen, Christians. Those may all be good things to be and great ways to love our neighbor. I want our church to have people who are those things, but they have to be secondary. They have to be secondary. The ancient church was a handful of, a handful of churches scattered here and there, but churches of men and women and children who loved each other sacrificially to the end in a way that was different. People who weren't ashamed of the simple gospel message, and it was their love for one another that set them apart. Jesus said it would be true. They'll know you're my disciples by your love. People don't listen to arguments. It's important to know what you believe and what you think. People go into arguments looking for validation. How are you going to get their attention? So that they hear. You show and tell. At the end of the day, what sets apart the Christian is hope and joy and faith and love in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficult circumstances. And that's what has the power to shake people up and get them to consider whether or not they might be wrong. And maybe they should listen. The relationship between Paul and this church sounds spiritual because it is spiritual. It's deeper and more real than most relationships are because it's founded on the fact that we're saints in Christ, partakers of grace, partners in the gospel. It's grounded in spiritual realities, so the only way to speak about it is in spiritual terms. Our relationships, though, even here at Church of the King on Sunday mornings, are always at risk of falling short of that. Always, unless we do the work. They're always at risk of being nothing more than sharing some things in common. Liking the same sorts of music, the same hobbies, IU basketball, Kentucky water polo, (laughs) Purdue basket weaving, whatever you like. Or being in the same stage of life, being peers, having shared experiences. We make such a big deal about all of those things. And listen, shared experience is important, right? All those things matter. They're fun. It's fun to talk about the things you like. 
doesn't matter if it's the latest Marvel movie or your cool new hunting gear or your kids. It's important to have relationships with people in every stage of life. People who have been there before you, who are there with you now, people who are headed there. That's all important. Those things matter. But if we want what this church had, we have to go beyond that. Beyond liking the same shows or sharing the same hobbies. Or else we'll just be a loosely bound together people. And when difficulty comes, we split. There's nothing actually holding us together. When the next cool church thing comes along, we'll bounce. When suffering and persecution comes, we'll scatter. We'll be just like the church at Corinth or Galatia. We have to be a family that is about the things of God. And it has to be about not just talking about the things of God. But action. Working together to see God's kingdom come. And God's will be done in Evansville as it is in heaven. At the end of the day, that's the battle that we're fighting. It's a real battle. It's not a battle primarily about political action or political retreat. It's a battle with principalities and powers in unseen places. It's a spiritual battle between the city of God and the city of man, the kingdom of God and the prince of this world, light versus darkness. Not for the soul of our nation, it's a drop in the bucket. For the soul's of our families and our friends and our neighbors, the eternal souls. Those are things that we can do. This is how the early church changed the entire world and it's how we can change it. It's our part to play. This is how we win, even though it doesn't look much like winning. Always looks like losing and failure. But since the time of Jesus until now, the world has seen a repetition of darkness and dawn, death and resurrection, and always the kingdom of God comes out stronger. Always. Always the kingdom of God triumphs over death. Things may get dark for our church and the church in America. Before the darkness comes, the dawn. And that's why I never get tired of pointing out the fact that the Apostle Paul, when he planted this church in Philippi 2,000 years ago, it was the first church in Europe. There was nothing but darkness. All of Europe, darkness. Nothing. No gospel, no God, no hope in the world. Nothing. This church was the first one. The first one. And now, and I'm not getting tired of saying this either. Today, 2,000 years later, here we are on the opposite side of the world. In a region that was ruled and governed and controlled by mound-dwelling pagans. Or mound-building pagans or whatever they were. Worshiping the living God together. In a city where there are multiple churches, any number of churches this morning where God's word is being preached and has been preached for hundreds of years. It's amazing. Jesus always wins. Always. It's what he does. His gospel will be preached to all nations. The nations will be discipled. His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And here's how he wins. Through people like us just being Christians. No matter how weak and small we feel. No matter how much we suffer from men, from God's own discipline of us, we maintain our hope and our joy and our peace in the midst of all of that suffering. As Paul tells the church in Philippi to do, we love one another the way this church loved each other and we remain faithful to defend the gospel as this church defended the gospel. That was the foundation for their relationship. And it leads to this prayer at the end that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment 
so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Praise for them two things, love and knowledge and discernment. Got to have love. And it has to be paired with real knowledge and discernment. Why? To what end? So that we have wisdom to approve what's excellent. You can't love people if you don't have knowledge and discernment, if you don't have the wisdom to approve what's good and right and true and actually helpful. So we can be wise and approve what's excellent. Why? So that we can be pure and blameless, so that we can fight and deal with our own sin. And beyond that, so that we can be filled with the fruit of righteousness. To what end? Ultimately, the ultimate end of all things, the glory and praise of God, who is at work in us, who has called us out of darkness into light. So God may get the glory and the praise. Because at the end, it's all about him. Okay, here's the conclusion to today's sermon. We are to have fellowship with one another in grace. That's the real better translation of partakers in grace. Fellowship in grace. Fellowship in grace. And what does that mean? It means we're supposed to have real intimacy with one another because we're saints in Christ Jesus. Being saints in Christ Jesus means we don't have to tell lies. We can tell the truth about ourselves. It's safe when we're saints to be sinners who have real problems and real baggage and real messes that we need help with because that's all that we are. We're not saints. We're saints in Christ Jesus, which is to say we're sinners who need a savior, all of us. No pretense is necessary. No pretending necessary. No need to put on a happy face and be better than we actually are. Smile and be Good, cheerful Midwesterners, no need for it. We can actually be people who are pretty terrible at life if we want to be, (laughs) but people who are terrible at life and following Jesus and growing. To know him better, to trust him, and to help each other grow in godliness. Committed to forgiving one another, because if we're living in real intimacy and fellowship with one another, what's going to happen? Yodia and Syntyche are going to disagree And they're going to need grace to love and forgive each other and learn how to work through things. Committed to loving each other, to speaking the truth to each other, walking by the Spirit, putting to death our sin, living up to our calling to be saints in Christ Jesus. Okay, so think about the relationships in your life and in this church now. We're young church. Not everybody knows everybody. Not yet. Think about the work you do to, remain, to maintain the relationships in your life and why. Think about what binds you together and tears you apart with the closest relationships you have. Think about the places where you're willing to stand and the places where you're tempted to run. One day, all of this is all going to be over. We're all going to die. We're all going to stand before God. He will ask whether or not we were ashamed of him and his words and whether or not we are ashamed of each other, and loved each other as he commanded. So do the work. Be like the church in Acts. Devote yourselves to the same things they devoted themselves to, the teaching of the apostles. Okay, you're here. You're listening to God's word. So far, so good. The breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Meet someone new this morning. 
someone that you haven't really gotten to know. Have someone over for lunch or dinner today or this week at some point. Ask someone to pray for you about the thing you're struggling with. Find a corner. Push forward this morning into real obedience. Find out who's struggling here with things at work, things with their kids, things with their parents, with difficulty having kids, with sins in their past, sins in their present. Do the work of loving each other. That's how we become like this church. We commit to looking around and saying, we will know each other, we will love each other. We're all just saints in Christ Jesus, sinners saved by grace who need each other.